0: And welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillam, a host on the channel. And today I'm talking to Dr. Camila Hawthorne, who is the author of the book, Contesting Race and Citizenship, Youth Politics in the Black Mediterranean, published by Cornell University Press. Dr. Hawthorne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm looking forward to talking about your book as well. And I just wanted to start with a question um, about you. And so your book follows the actions of young black Italians working on behalf of black citizenship in in Italy. And so I wondered how you came to write this book. Um, Can you tell us about yourself, your background, and what sparked your interest in blackness and activism in Italy?
1: Yes, and thank you for starting with that question because you know for so many of us, well, for none of us really, we're not abstracted researchers um, who come to these questions solely out of a desire to resolve a, like a, a purely abstract intellectual puzzle. There's always some kind of personal connection, um, and there's a way that we bring part of ourselves to our research, and who we are shapes uh, the questions that we ask and how we're able to go about answering them in the field. So. I became interested in these questions of race and citizenship and Blackness in Italy because I myself am uh, a Black woman of Italian descent. My father is African-American. He was born in rural Virginia, grew up in Oakland, was drafted and sent to an army base in Italy where he met my mom, who is a white Italian woman, uh, also from a small rural town um, outside of Milan, about an hour from Milan. My parents met in Italy and married there in 1976, and then eventually made their way to the United States um, and had me in California. But because of the way that Italian citizenship law is structured, I was born with dual U.S. and Italian citizenship, and because my mom stayed home to take care of me, I actually was fluent in Italian before I spoke English, and because my mom was the youngest of 13 and was the only one from her family to emigrate from Italy, I spent chunks of my life in Italy, going back and forth to visit my really large Italian family in Italy. And so, you know, these are questions in many ways that I've lived on the surface of my skin And as I got older and as Italy started to become more of a site of African migration in the 90s and into the 2000s, I started to see more people who looked like me, see more families that looked like mine. And as I got to college and then in grad school, I became really interested in understanding sort of beyond my own experience of what it felt like to be a black woman who was also Italian, more broadly, uh what black Italian experiences are like, what kind what are the sort of unique forms of racism that have sedimented in the context of Italy. And one thing that I think is also important for me to note is that although I identify as a black Italian or I like to say Italo Afroamericana, Italian African American. My lived experience of Black Italianness is also very different from that of my friends and comrades and interlocutors who were born and raised in Italy. Um, and one of the key things is that I have citizenship thanks to the same restrictive racist citizenship law that denies so many other Black Italians access to citizenship.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, that's really interesting, and that takes me really to the next question that I have, which really gets at also the title of your book, which is, of course, Contesting Race and Citizenship. And in your book, you argue that citizenship is central to Black cultural politics and activism in Italy. And so I was surprised to learn, as you just said, that some of your research participants were born in Italy, Italy, but they weren't citizens. Um, And so what is citizenship based on in Italy? What are the benefits of citizenship? Um, You know, what can you access with it that would otherwise be unavailable? Um, and so, like, why is citizenship so important? Yeah.
1: So currently there are between 600,000 and 900,000 children of immigrants, largely youth of color, who are disenfranchised because of Italian citizenship law. So Italian citizenship law is governed on the basis of youth sanguinis or right of blood, right, as opposed to the United States, which also which has a system of youth soli, right, where Regardless of the immigration status of your parents, if you were born on US soil, you're a citizen. In Italy, if your parents immigrated to Italy, but you were born in Italy, you are not automatically a citizen at birth. Um, Instead, you inherit the citizenship of your parents. And then when you turn 18, you have a one year window during which you can apply for Italian citizenship. But in order to do that, you have to have documentary proof of continuous residence since birth. You have to pay a pretty hefty application fee, pass an Italian language exam, which is quite offensive, right, for a generation of young people who were born and raised in Italy and did all of their schooling in Italy and a number of other qualifications. And so for various reasons, this means that there are young people who even though they might meet the requirements, even if they meet those requirements on paper, they're still barred from citizenship Um, due to we could say bureaucratic technicalities. So for some people, that documentary proof of continuous residence, um, it can be difficult to get the right paperwork together to show that you actually were legally present in Italy. So I know plenty of stories of people who had lived continuously in Italy from birth. um, But for whatever reason, there was a gap in their paperwork. And so they were unable to prove that to the state. There are some people who don't know about the way the law is structured and don't realize that they only have a one year window when they can apply for citizenship. And so, because they weren't informed about the laws, they miss that, they miss that opportunity. And then, you know, to, we, we sort we've all I'm sure heard, um, some jokes or stereotypes about Italian bureaucracy. And the truth is that there are, um, constant bureaucratic wrinkles that lead to people's citizenship applications being stuck in limbo for years and years and years. Now, what's important to note is that the current Italian citizenship law that's in force was enacted in the early 90s. And that law, and it's important to note the early 90s, which is a moment when Italy was becoming a major country of immigration, and when there was a great deal of Public preoccupation about large numbers of West African migrants um, who were coming to Italy and settling down and working in Italy and having families. And so, in that year, the time for immigrants to naturalize, to become Italian citizens, was doubled from five years of residency to 10 years of residency right? It became harder for the children of immigrants born and raised in Italy to naturalize. And it became easier for ethnic descendants of Italians in the diaspora to reacquire Italian citizenship. And so for this latter case, we're talking about, you know, someone whose great, great grandfather emigrated from Italy to the United States. And this person has never lived in Italy, doesn't speak Italian, um, doesn't have Italian citizenship, but is able to prove that he is descendant from an Italian citizen and can very quickly reactivate his Italian citizenship.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to just ask too about citizenship in general because it seems like it's also more than simply a piece of paper that grants rights. And so I wondered if you could talk about um, citizenship as... Um, more than this in the struggle for Black Italians.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's more than just a piece of paper. And I think this is important to know. And this is where I, as a side note, I find it really interesting to put uh, conversations about citizenship in, for example, U.S.-based Black studies into conversations um, about citizenship in the context of Black European studies, where, you know, the question and i think the us american context is you know what were the what were the conditions under which black americans mobilized for legal citizenship after the abolition of slavery and now in the present how do we make sense of the persistence of inequality and second-class citizenship for those who are legally recognized as citizens. But in the Italian context, right, large numbers of Black people are still not even recognized as citizens. And so it's a really important reminder about sort of the ongoing salience of citizenship in shaping life chances, right, and shaping opportunities and creating um, the structural conditions for persistent inequality. So, in the Italian case, if you don't have citizenship, you um, are basically living in Italy on the equivalent of like a green card that would be tied to um, employment or education or schooling. And that raises the specter, right, for many uh, disenfranchised children of immigrants of deportation to a parental home country that they may have never visited. Now, I don't know of many cases of that happening, but the mere fact that it could happen is a deep source of existential dread for many children of immigrants. Um, Without access to um, Italian citizenship, you are cut out from a lot of job opportunities. Um, In Italy, there are whole Employment fields that are governed through concorsi pubblici or public competitions um, that are organized by by state by the state. So that includes fields like teaching, medicine, practicing law, and so on. And you can only enter these concorsi pubblici if you have Italian citizenship. So there are whole swaths of employment that people are cut out from. Um, Traveling, particularly traveling around the European Union, is much more complicated. Um, So, there's all of these ways that life chances are shaped by not having access to citizenship. And then the other piece of it, too, is that there's a psychological impact as well that many people talk about. um, That there is a huge mental toll that growing up in a country Seeing yourself as being no different from your classmates, but realizing, for example, that when you are coming home from a study abroad trip with your classmates, that everyone goes into one line and you have to go into a different line because according to the law, you are a foreigner, um, causes a, a great uh, amount of psychological distress for people as well. So, you know, in that sense, it's not just a kind of pro forma piece of paper, it has material and psychological and emotional impacts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I liked how you began answering that question with this comparison between the United States and Brazil, and I'm uh, sorry, the United States and Italy. And I say that because I do research on Black struggles in Brazil, and I'm also located in the United States. Um, and I saw these points of comparison between Brazil and Italy. Um, and so I was interested in this idea of the mixed Mediterranean. And so in Brazil, people would traditionally say that the population is racially mixed. And because it's racially mixed, there can be no racism. Um, because without a color line, how can you have like racism and differential behaviors and differential um attitudes and but you show us in the mediterranean that the mediterranean is is thought to be the space of mixture and exchange um, but and this is also used to, to deny racism um that racism exists in italy and so i wondered uh in that context what is the relationship between mixture and and beliefs around racism in italy that's such a great question and I appreciate you putting
1: Italy into dialogue with Brazil because there are so many parallels including the the struggle against encroaching fascism you know in Italy uh Italy just elected uh, Giorgia Meloni as prime minister who is a neo-fascist and is the most far right political leader Uh, head of state in Italy since Mussolini. And in fact, that actually brings me back to one other thing I didn't mention when I talked about the material impacts of restricted access to citizenship, which is voting. There's a whole generation of young people who are disenfranchised and cannot vote in national elections because they're not recognized as citizens. Um, so, to your question about mixing, again, another reason why the comparison with Brazil is so interesting is because, on the one hand, I think that there are really fascinating parallels between discourses of Lusotropicalism, which were used to justify Portuguese colonialism, and Mediterraneanism, which was actually, among other discourses, used to justify Italian colonialism. At the same time, often when talking to Italians, from a broad range across the political spectrum, when you talk to white Italians about race or quote-unquote race relations, what you often hear is, we don't want to be like the United States with the one-drop rule where racial categories are so rigid. Brazil offers a better model that is more applicable to the Italian context. So there's even a way that in Italy, thinkers are often drawing on the myth of Brazilian racial democracy and mixture as a way of crafting an alternative to what they see as this overly American fixation on race or a black-white racial binary. But of course, in both the Italian and the Brazilian cases, we know that the story is not that simple. So in Italy, right, this goes all the way back to the founding of the Italian nation state. Um, Italy has always kind of posed this, problem for racial theorists in Europe. And in part, it's because on the one hand, we have European nation states, right? So the the kind of the, the beginnings, the rise of the European nation state, which is also tied to the rise of racial thinking in Europe, in which many of these new European nation states see themselves as the latest step in a historical tradition that dates back to the Roman Empire. So on the one hand, there's a way in which this sort of Eurocentric historiography is very oriented toward the Roman Empire. On the other hand, there's new archaeological evidence appearing around the Mediterranean basin and the Italian Peninsula specifically that shows that ancient Rome was not a mono-racial or mono-ethnic society. And this, of course, conflicts with this narrative of Rome as sort of the heart of a white Western European civilization. So how do you square those things? Well, you get de Gobineau, who writes um, an essay on the inequality of human races. And what de Gobineau says is that ancient Rome was founded by Aryans, but the Roman Empire ultimately declined because these Aryan Romans were intermingling too much with their imperial subjects from Africa and Asia. And so in that way, drawing this separation between Italians in the present or the present day inhabitants of the Italian peninsula and the Roman Empire. So then when Italy becomes a nation state after the wars of Italian unification at the end of the 19th century, you have policymakers and politicians and researchers in this fledgling Italian nation state who are trying to figure out how they can basically show that they are also part of this white European racial family. And so you end up with all of these different efforts to make sense of the the problem of mixing in the Italian peninsula, right? At one point, it's, the north of italy is aryan and the south of italy is african at one point you know before mussolini went in the direction of aryanism right pure italian aryanism mussolini actually denied the existence of pure races and said that italy was a mediterranean an aryan mediterranean race right? So even Mussolini at one point upheld this idea of mixedness, saying that this is what actually made Italy a stronger nation than its Northern European counterparts. Um, so at various moments, right, you see these efforts to make sense of Italian national racial identity in relation to this idea of Mediterranean mixing, right? And so that basically means that even though there is this long historical footprint of people from all over right all of the areas surrounding the mediterranean basin crossing through italy that doesn't necessarily mean that they're have not there haven't been ongoing contestations over race and boundaries, right? And then the same thing happens in the context of Italian colonialism, right? If Italians are part of some kind of a Mediterranean race, then what becomes the basis of Italian colonial authority in the Horn of Africa? Well, a new set of codes and policies and racial discourses is needed to Square Italy's quote unquote Mediterranean ness with its imperial ambitions. And so, what we see is rather than the non existence of race, it's just a constant renegotiation, reworking of the boundaries between Europeanness and Africanness and whiteness and blackness as they unfold in debates about who gets to be an Italian and who gets to be an Italian citizen.
0: Mm -hmm. That is fascinating, Um, especially as you as you began to these, I see all of these comparisons with Brazil, but also you bring up the politics, um, the contemporary politics within the two countries as Brazil is, you know, currently as we're recording this in election season, um, as we, you know, as we speak. Um, And so you mentioned that this like complicated understanding of mixture in in Italy um, and but despite this denial of racism that you know one can see you you make the point that racism of course does exist in Italy as you said and I was going to cite one of your interlocutors um, from page 135 his name's DJ Marvoli Goma perseverance who says that black people in Italy are quote, condemned to excel so that we don't fall into the category of the usual immigrants or the usual blacks. And that resonated with me in the United States uh, because of this consistent demand, you know, for excellence from black people, because we're given, you know, no leeway or, you know, no other choice um, in this, in this context. But um, how does racism manifest itself in, in Italy, as you found from your, from your research and discussions with your interlocutors?
1: Well, you know, I think this this actually relates to the previous question you asked as well that it's hard to talk about racism and anti-black racism specifically without this deeper history of Italian nation-building and colonialism because this perceived antagonism between Italianness and blackness again is very much rooted in these struggles over who is Italian, who is Italy um that took place both in the context of national unification and and colonialism. Um, One of the things that I think is really important when it comes to talking about racism in Italy is the way that racism and xenophobia are intertwined. And of course, racism and xenophobia are always intertwined. That's not unique to Italy. But I think that sometimes, for example, in the US context, we tend to map different kinds of struggles or different systems of oppression onto specific groups where we see xenophobia and border fortification as a struggle that maps onto um, Latinx groups and racism as mapping onto Black Americans and then sort of coloniality as mapping onto Indigenous or Native communities. And Italy is, I think, really important because it actually forces us to reckon with the fact that those three forces are profoundly intertwined. Right? So we can't understand anti Black racism without acknowledging that the majority of Black people in Italy um, are post colonial subjects, not necessarily of Italian Empire, but of European Empire in a certain sense. Most of them have if they are not immigrants themselves, then they have a direct familial connection to migration and the violence of European border regimes. And they also endure various forms of anti-Black racism from the the state racism, for example, of um, the border apparatus and the restriction of citizenship to the everyday racism of microaggression. Right and and questioning, and so the the that quote that you read is important because it also shows how race and class and immigration are so intertwined, and in the context of Italy and particularly, um, you know, particularly in the last five to 10 years when the, the Mediterranean Sea has been reframed as a site of invasion, right? and it's been cast as a sort of ongoing migratory emergency, there is a great deal of moral panic around the supposed problem of African migrants coming to Italy, either to drain scarce state resources or to steal the jobs of hardworking Italians who are suffering in the wake of the Eurozone economic collapse. And so we see this in um, uh, media representations and political discourse around Blackness in Italy. And one of the, I think, most striking examples, which I reference in the book, a picture was taken of Samuel L. Jackson and Magic Johnson sitting on a bench somewhere in Tuscany, surrounded by Prada shopping bags. They had just gone on a high-end shopping spree, right? And we're talking about two of the wealthiest Black men on the planet. And someone snapped a picture of them and shared it on social media. And as this picture made its way through the internet, at one point, people started to share it with the caption that these were two immigrants, refugees, Who were taking the money that they were given by the state to go on high end shopping sprees, right? And people actually believed this nonsense. And so you see this in the way that young Black Italians are sort of forced or constrained to articulate their citizenship claims. They are either explicitly or subtly put in a position where they have to show that they're eligible for citizenship because. They're well educated because they speak multiple languages, because um, they are successful entrepreneurs, because they're brilliant doctors, because they are actually able to make a contribution to the Italian economy, which has been facing so much stagnation. Right. And of course, the point that activists make is that citizenship. Is a fundamental right. It's not something that has to be earned. It, it should not be something that should that has to be earned because it's not as though Italian citizens will lose their citizenship if they lose their job or if they don't go to school. And so, I think that's sort of one example of the way that racism plays out in Italy in a way that is really explicitly tied to class anxieties and xenophobia. Mm-hmm.
0: And so that that's great, because one of the the things that you lay out in the book is that, you know, these contradictory and complicated racial dynamics in Italy. And, and as you just kind of described, your interlocutors really have to be nimble in, in navigating them. They can't just make any Any kind of claim, and as you just said, for example, um, at the time you, you were doing this research, Italy was facing this crisis um, where uh, Africans were migrating uh, to the to the country en mass and seeming se- it seemed like they were you know arriving in these boats at their shores, and so black activists had to be careful in how they how they related to recent black arrivals. they couldn't just you know throw them under the bus and say you know, just citizenship for us, not for them. And so uh, can you tell us how the Black Italians you worked with, you know, protested and drew attention to to racism and Blackness in, in Italy? Yes. So these these activists were always
1: linking citizenship to racism. And I think that's really important, right? It wasn't just citizenship. It was a broader... The citizenship struggle has always been part of a broader struggle against racism, right? And a broader struggle to bring to the forefront the persistence of racism in Italy, despite this long history of post-World War II denial of racism altogether. And I think the challenge, as you articulated so succinctly, the challenge, right, is how to combat Racism, structural racism, using the language of the racial state itself. In other words, if citizenship is a tool of racial filtering used by the state, if citizenship is an apparatus that the state uses to maintain the racial boundaries of the nation, then what happens when politi- anti racist politics take as one of their goals? the acquisition of citizenship. And that created all sorts of ethical and political dilemmas for the activists I worked with in the context of this refugee crisis, where on the one hand, they had to be really careful not to compare themselves too closely to refugees, but on the other hand, recognize that their struggles were inextricable from the struggles of other, of of refugees who were also Black. And I found a lot of inspiration in working with young Eritrean Italians in part because at the time when I was doing my research large numbers of refugees from Eritrea were arriving to Milan and there were a, a lot of the prominent citizenship reform activists were also Eritreans and I think because of that dual positionality right as black italians mobilizing for citizenship and as Eritrean Italians with a set of um obligations, right, political, ethical obligations to a broader Habesha diaspora, they were sort of uniquely situated to really think about the the possibilities and also the limits of citizenship. And we're always making a point to say, you know, yes, we're going to keep mobilizing for citizenship. This is important. And we're also aware that we have certain privileges that come with being born and raised in Italy. And it's our responsibility to use those privileges to work in the service of this Black diaspora, in the context of shared histories of anti-colonial struggle, um, showing up for Eritrean refugees who have been completely ignored by the Italian state. So citizenship is one part of a broader set of anti-racist Black diasporic struggles that also includes solidarity work with refugees and mobilizations against the violence of Fortress Europe. Mm
0: And so in the book, you also really, you know, traverse these different locations in Italy and you shine a light on different figures engaged in racial justice in Italy. You really bring us into the world of individuals, collectives, groups in different cities, you know, who are working on behalf of uh, anti-racism in Italy. And I wanted wondered if you could talk about, you know, one particular person her name was Evelyn Afua, an Italian Ghanaian, who founded the website Nappi Italia. And I just, I, I like the way that you, you know, you lifted up her and her work. And, and if you could tell us, you know, why it's important for Black communities in Italy. Yeah, thank you. So
1: Evelyn, my, my interviews with Evelyn were part of a chapter of the book, on Black women's entrepreneurship in Italy, which, as I say, was this very unexpected part of the research, because when I set out to study this emergent Black Italian politics, and I say emergent, this is also important, because when I started doing this research in 2012, it was still a very new phenomenon for the children of African immigrants in Italy to call themselves collectively Black or Afro-Italian. So I was really interested in trying to understand these dynamics. and. I sort of naively got to Italy and thought that I would spend all of my time in activist collectives and marching in the street and going to demonstrations. But I realized that the struggles that were unfolding around Blackness in Italy were even broader than that, and that there was this whole phenomenon of women in particular who were creating communities that were oriented on questions of hair care, beauty, and style. Which someone might, at first glance, say, "Well, that's you know very superficial. What does that have to do with black politics?" But as we know, right from generations of black feminist theory, um, beauty is an important site of struggle over race and racism, misogynoir, the politics of different citizenship. So, I came across Evelyn because I was starting to do some preliminary research for my project, and I found this Facebook page that at the time was called. Afro-Italian nappy girls. And I thought, what is this? This is fascinating. It was a Facebook page um, in which Evelyn Afeoa would share resources for the care of natural black hair um, translated into Italian. And I was struck by, one, the use of the phrase Afro-Italian, and two, the way that these hair care tips and styling tips became a platform for talking about issues that were not immediately about hair, but were about having access to Italian citizenship and experiences of everyday gendered racism and fighting back against Eurocentric beauty standards, that hair became the, the conduit for a broader sense of community and for building a broader community. And so, when I interviewed Evelyn, I got to learn more about this project. And it really started from her own experience of deciding to go natural and deciding to embrace her features after years of internalized anti Blackness um, that come from growing up in an Italian society that privileges a very narrow standard of beauty. And over time, the Facebook page grew. Um, Evelyn launched a website called Mapitalia. Um, she began organizing meetups and workshops for Black women around Italy. She started selling products. She would import products from around the Black diaspora and sell them because pro, you know, before five years ago or so, it was impossible to find products for the care of natural Black hair in Italy. And then ultimately in the last couple of years, she actually launched her own line of made in Italy um, hair care products. And so Evelyn has been recognized really widely for this work. She's given, you know, she travels and gives talks. She's won numerous awards. Um, But again, what's so important is that, you know, Evelyn was using hair care and ideas of beauty and self-love as a way to open up broader conversations about what it means to be Black in Italy. And so there are many women who kind of came to, they had their sort of consciousness raising, right, and began to connect with other Black Italian women because they started out by having these conversations about hair. So it's really important. And I think it complicates conversations that we might have about the role of entrepreneurship and Black struggle, because it was never really just about um, these workshops or these hair products as a business strategy. Because in the case of Mapitalia, it really just started as a community where Black women could come together to talk about the politics of hair.
0: Yeah, I think um, for me, Black hair is one of my favorite topics um, in general, because it's just such a potent site of discussion and struggle, as you just said. Um, and it seems like something simple, because it's just something that grows out of our head. But it's, but it's specificity in a way, like, then demands these, these different actions that people take in different places. So I really enjoyed that chapter in the book. And Also in the book, you talk about diaspora politics, and you've touched on this already, but relations between the United States and Italy in relationship to race. And that's because one assumption is that the idea of race comes from the United States and doesn't really apply to Italy. And so this is something I think about also in relationship to to Brazil. And I wondered if this is a claim that you feel like you have to come combat. And if so, like, what are the ways to combat it? Is it like citing Italian scholarship or or using the archive? Um, So I was just wondering your thoughts about, about these ideas, about race, you know, coming from the United States and not applying to Italy. It's such a huge problem
1: in the Italian context. It's such a big problem that up until maybe three years ago, um, it was totally taboo in academic writing to use the Italian word for race, which is razza. Um, And before that, if someone needed to write about race, they would use the English word race in scare quotes. And before that, you couldn't even say that. And I tell this story in the book of um, meeting with um, a white Italian scholar to talk about my research. And I, you know, committed the grave error of saying the Italian word for race and was just totally chewed out for it. Um, and the con- her conclusion was, we don't say race. It makes people uncomfortable. It sounds too fascist. And really, ethnicity is a more accurate way of categorizing human groups. Um, and I think because of the fact that even though I am Italian, my training has been in US-based institutions. I have to be really aware of that potential avenue of pushback, right? That I'm, you know, I'm being clouded by, you know, I'm not able to see the Italian reality accurately because of these um, U.S. American blinders that I have on. And so I have kind of two strategies for dealing with this. One is I go to the archive precisely as you said. And that's, you know, the reason why I did archival research for this book, even though I'm not an historian, is because I knew that I was going to get so much pushback about this insistence on the salience of racism and race as categories for understanding Italian social relations, that I needed to be able to show that there was um, an endogenous, homegrown Italian tradition of racial thinking that, emerged in response to the challenges of national unification. So people like Cesare Lombroso, who's more known in the US as the founder of modern scientific criminology, is also Italy's most famous homegrown racial theorist. Um, The other piece of it, and one thing that's important too, is that when you do the archival work, you also see that this is Race goes to the heart of the nation building project since the time of national unification and liberal Italy that it 's also not just a fascist aberration because that 's the other that 's the sort of other excuse then they 'll say well that was just that was just fascism that was just the influence of Hitler on Mussolini and you can say, well, actually, race thinking in Italy did not begin, nor did it end with Mussolini and the other thing that I like to do is to not think about. U.S. racism and Italian racism as these two bounded categories, but to actually think about how they influence each other. So I like to think relationally about the U.S. and Italy and how racial ideologies and discourses circulated between these sites and many other sites such that they were actually influencing each other. So we can't think about the U.S. as this totally separate context from Italy because for so many reasons it wasn't. Right. Racial theorists about the difference, racial theories about the difference between northern and southern Italians were cited in anti-Italian immigration law in the United States. Um, you know, part of the reason why um, the Italian government never had a kind of post-fascist purge was because of the influence of the United States in wanting to keep Italy as a stronghold against the incursion of communism. Right. Um, there were circuits, transnational circuits of race thinkers who were all in dialogue with each other of which Italy was a part. So Italy also is not this exceptional bounded case that was separate from a broader global circulation of race thinking either. And I try to show that in my work.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah. You can definitely see that in the work, both the archival research that you undertook and um, this idea of the relationality. I think that's a really good way to think about these ideas of what one might want to position Italy as the exception. But I like how you say it's it's actually not. It's in relation to all of these other all of these other places. And um, I guess speaking of relation, I was thinking about your idea of the Black Mediterranean in relationship to the Black Atlantic. And just briefly, the Black Atlantic is this idea developed by Robert Ferris Thompson and then later Paul Gilroy, which for me gained visibility in the 90s and 2000s. And, you know, many scholars such as myself, have built off this idea of the Black Atlantic, which obviously centers the Atlantic Ocean and the land masses around it, like North America, Latin America, Europe, and, and Africa, but and the exchanges between populations across those places. But you theorize the Black Mediterranean as an analytic and an ethical imperative that gains saliency from histories of Italian colonialism Racial imaginaries in Italy and Italian regional politics between the north and the south, just to name a few factors. So I wanted um, you to talk about your understanding of the black of the Black Mediterranean, and I also wondered if it seems to me that the Black Mediterranean is gaining more visibility now, and and if that's the case, I wondered if you had thoughts about about why that might be. Thanks. Yeah. So I, you know, I came to the Black
1: Mediterranean, because much of my training is in Black diaspora studies. And so, of course, Gilroy is really foundational. And I sort of found myself thinking, well, if there's a Black Atlantic, could there also be a Black Mediterranean? And as I started doing some research, I found that I was not the only person asking that question, right? Alessandra Maio, Timothy Raymacher's... um, Even um, Cedric Robinson, right, is alluding to a kind of Black Mediterranean history and Black Marxism. But the reason why I was sort of reaching for this oceanic diasporic analytic was also because I found that theories of Blackness and the Black diaspora that sort of take as their geographical point of reference the North Atlantic had limitations in terms of how they helped us understand blackness in Italy. And really one of the big things here is how we think about the centrality of the middle passage in the way that we understand the history and construction and different declinations of blackness. So this is not to say that the history of the transatlantic slave trade has no bearing on black Italy today, right? Obviously in a kind of, um, Deeper, perhaps ontological sense, we could say that there were sort of world historical rearrangements of the world and systems of categorization that that shape what it means to be black and black Italian today. And of course, um, Afro Latinx migrants and their children in Italy have these direct connections to the history of slavery. But the majority of black people in Italy are not direct descendants of people of ancestors who underwent the Middle Passage, right? And so for me, it was really trying to understand, you know, how do we how do we understand the politics of Blackness in a way that is not wholly defined by the Middle Passage? And so for this, I have to say that I am also deeply indebted to the writings of Michelle Wright and her book, Physics of Blackness, which asks the same question, right? How do we move beyond what she calls the middle passage epistemology to make space for a plurality of different forms of Blackness, right? Of many kinds of Blacknesses that are not necessarily reducible to each other. So, you know, thinking about the Black Mediterranean means thinking about um, the histories of racial formation that are unique to uh, the Mediterranean and trans-Mediterranean contacts about the long history of exchange between Europe and Africa that was, that was mediated by the oceanic space of the Mediterranean. It means thinking about histories of colonialism. It means thinking about the fortification of the Mediterranean border in the present, right? And the ways that these processes are all intertwined. But the other piece about the Mediterranean, right, and again, I'm always harping on this, right, but my intent with this is never to argue that therefore you have this thing that's the Black Atlantic that's a bounded category and then a thing called the Black Mediterranean that's a bounded category, but that actually these are relational spaces, right, that emerge in relation to each other. And so how does our understanding of the Black Atlantic actually deepen if we put it into dialogue with the Black Med? And so, again, to go back to Cedric Robinson, I think a great example of this, he says that the technologies of plantation cultivation and the use of enslaved labor, they were tested in the Mediterranean, in the agricultural outposts and islands of the Mediterranean. Before they were exported across the Atlantic, that the Genoese, right, the Genoese merchant capitalists financed Spanish and Portuguese voyages of discovery to the extent that it was Genoese investment that really set the pace of, quote unquote, discovery in the new world. So, in many ways, we can't actually understand the emergence of racial capitalism without thinking about these historical dynamics of dispossession and subordination and violence in the Mediterranean as well. And so, for that reason as well, you know, I think about the Black Mediterranean as not only an analytic, but as a kind of political demand to really think about the connection between racial capitalism coloniality, border fortification, and racism in our politics. And to to the second part of your question, I, I agree. I think the Black Mediterranean as a category has gained much more traction in the last couple of years. And I think part of how we can understand that is also the resurgence in interest in Mediterranean studies in the last 10 years. And I think that has to do with growing attention to the fortification of the Mediterranean border and the resultant violence and death in the Mediterranean, which prompted scholars, particularly across the humanities, Italianist historians, to revisit the Mediterranean space, not just as a site of death and enclosure, but also as a site of intermixing, right? To say that the Mediterranean has always been a site of contact and exchange. And Um, This current violence is not the only way that we can understand this space. I think the Black Mediterranean has gained traction in part in response to that, because there's often a way that in this effort to understand the Mediterranean otherwise, the history of racial subordination in the Mediterranean is often downplayed in favor of visions of a kind of transgressive, trans-Mediterranean cultural unity. And so the Black Mediterranean really puts race at the center of how we think about that space and the dynamics that reverberate in the present. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. That's really interesting. And you can, um, and you really go into it in the book as well, where you, you know, take us through your idea of the, of the black Mediterranean and, and its relationalities. And so this is, I guess, the second to last question where I was, I wanted to ask you about the methods appendix you have in the, in the back of the book, where you lay out your methodology. And I really like this for, t- for me, for teaching, because I teach ethnographic research methods and ethnographers rarely go into ex- explicit or detailed background about how they undertook the research. And so I wondered why you included the appendix and also if you could talk a little bit about your ethnographic research, any challenges or opportunities you encountered and how you may have overcome some of the challenges that you uh, that you encounter during field work?
1: Thanks. You know, I, in the initial draft of the manuscript, I hadn't thought to include a methods appendix. I had a shorter discussion of my methods in the introduction, Um, but I had a book manuscript workshop, which just as an aside, I recommend to, you know, anyone who's working on their first book where I had um, several senior scholars read my manuscript and we had a, a long session where they all provided feedback. And someone actually said, you know, you've used this very rich kind of multi-methods approach and I could see myself using this in a methods class. So it would be really helpful if you actually moved all of this and lengthened this discussion and put it in the appendix. Um, And it was a really useful exercise um, in part because, well, for two reasons. One, I think that all of our methods, especially, well, I think quantitative research as well, but I think for qualitative research and ethnography in particular, um, methods are so messy, right? Because so much of ethnography is um, moving where the field takes you and following threads and hanging out and waiting for things to happen and being surprised by things that emerge and changing directions, And so it was a useful exercise for me to actually sit back after, you know, seven years of research and say, okay, what did I actually do exactly? Right. And to clarify that for myself. But the other reason why I did it is because I found that when I was writing my dissertation, um, I was going back to books that I had read in grad seminars. And when you read for a grad seminar, you know, you're really reading for the author's argument, their theoretical intervention, but you're reading, at least in in the case of my program, reading less for the way that the author crafts a story out of different data points that are collected during fieldwork. And so I found myself going back to a lot of my favorite ethnographies to really figure out, okay, what is this chapter doing? What's the argument? What's the data that's being used? When are they bringing in quotes? When are they bringing in archival research? How does it all fit together? How is is all of this telling a story? And so I'm hoping that in including this methods appendix, I can make that process explicit. I can actually make that clear and visible to other people who are going through that process of figuring out how to tell a story out of years of ethnographic data. one of the things that I found most um kind of fascinating about the process of doing this research was as someone who has very close, let's say, identity or kind of subjectivity connections to the work that I'm doing, that that afforded me a really unique window and not simply on the basis of similarity where people said, oh, I'll talk to you because you're another Black Italian, but because... The fact that I was a Black, Italian, African-American scholar from the U.S., Meant that people were curious about me and my own lived experiences and my experience of being in the US and being in Italy. And so a lot of the interviews, quote unquote, that I did with people or conversations were were really more conversations where people would ask me about my experiences and I would ask them about theirs. And we would sort of try to pull out the places where our lived experiences overlapped and the places where there were these significant differences and try to theorize together. What accounted for these differences in our experiences of Blackness in Italy? And so because of both my proximity and distance from the questions I was researching, it became this incredible way to think in a collective about diaspora and Blackness and power and geography and citizenship. Right. Different people would read me in different ways depending on context. So in some places, I was the American researcher. At other points, I was the African American friend. At other times, I was the fellow, the fellow bergamasca. And all of those different moments of interpolation would reveal something really important. Um, I think the one of the biggest challenges for me. Really stems from the same phenomenon, right? The proximity and distance, right? And I think that to some extent, this is something that we all grapple with in the context of ethnography, right? At what point am I talking to you as a friend? At what point am I talking to you as a researcher? At what point am I talking to you as a political comrade and fellow organizer? And so, you know, really thinking about the ethics of research beyond just the the legal boilerplate of IRB, right? I always tell my grad students that there's IRB, but the whole world of ethical and political questions tied to ethnography vastly exceeds IRB, IRB. And so thinking about a process of ongoing consent, transparency, sharing my research as often as I could in a variety of fora, right? All the ways that I sort of navigated my multiple positionalities in Italy. And then of course, the last thing I'd say is just, you know, the reality of living your research on the surface of your skin, right? A lot of the stories that I tell of the kind of everyday racial micro and macro aggressions that Black Italians endure are also things that I have to live with in my research as well. Um, And I found the process of writing to be very cathartic because I could write through those painful moments. And in a way, you know, I would joke that, you know, writing was my revenge.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for that. That's such a rich answer and a a rich response and a lesson in reading, writing and also like Black diasporic ethnography um, when you were talking about Thinking about your position and their position, and talking with other people across, in a way, across these borders, but while you're sitting there in their presence, that's that's really fascinating. Um, so, my last question is about what projects you're either currently working on, or you have on the on the horizon, and maybe that you're in the process of planning for. So, I got tenure
1: at the end of the last academic year, and. Congratulations. Uh, I, I, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I went up for tenure early. And so for the first time in a decade, I feel like I'm not on a treadmill. So I'm actually trying to catch my breath right now. Um, but that being said, I have uh, two next projects that are in various stages. So one I'm very excited about is an edited volume with my colleague, Dr. Javon Scott Lewis at UC Berkeley. Um, the book is called. Uh, the Black Geographic Resistance Praxis Futurity. Um, And that's coming out with Duke University Press next year. It just went into production um, this month or last month. Um, And that's a collection of essays theorizing Black geographies. So how do we bring together insights from Black studies and critical human geographies to think um, about Blackness as subjectivity, as lived experience, as a set of resistant practices, but also what do Black studies and critical geographies taken together have to teach us about racism and the organization of the modern world? Um, And that's a project that has been in the pipeline for many years. So it's very exciting that it will finally see the light of day. Um, And then the next project that I'm beginning to think about is, um, it's another monograph or collection of essays that's tentatively titled Black Mediterranean Geographies of Abolition. Um, And this book was really, this book idea is inspired in part by the 2020 Black Lives Matter uprisings that took place not only in the United States, but really across the Black diaspora, including Italy. And one of the things that I found, and I was not able to participate in the demonstrations in Italy because of the pandemic, um, but following the news coverage, particularly from the United States, it was this very US-centered understanding of how politics of blackness were unfolding in Italy, with the with the assumption being that black consciousness starts in the United States and then black people around the world draw inspiration and learn of their own blackness by following what's happening in the United States. And that is not to deny the constant exchange of ideas and political strategies across the diaspora, but I felt that that really did a disservice to a much longer history of black organizing in Italy. And but you know, those those conversations and the conversations that I've had with people Um, who took part in those demonstrations and kind of more broadly, my work on the Black Mediterranean has really kind of piqued my interest in thinking about what a politics of abolition would look like in the Mediterranean context. So abolition is not a term that I've seen taken up extensively in the Italian context outside of calls to abolish Frontex. But I think in many ways, we see Black politics in Italy arcing in the direction of abolitionist visions, right? The abolition of borders and frontiers. And, you know, what I've even been thinking about myself is what does it mean to imagine the abolition of citizenship, right, as a mechanism by which we distribute access to rights and belonging and even full humanness. So in this book, I'm interested both in tracing the historical connections between the Black Mediterranean and the Black Atlantic in terms of the emergence of modern racial capitalism, but also potential avenues for solidarity between movements in the U.S. that are oriented on the abolition of police and prisons and a sort of emergent politics of abolition in the Black Mediterranean, with, as always, because my focus is on Italy, what these might look like in the Italian context.
0: Great. So we will look out for that edited volume coming from Duke University Press. And many congrats on getting tenure. And so we, we wish you also much rest as you embark on the on the next journey in your career and this next project. Um, so I have been speaking with Dr. Camila Hawthorne, the author of the book Contesting Race and Citizenship, Youth Politics in the Black Mediterranean, published by Cornell University University. Press. Thank you so much for writing this book, Camila, and thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for your really great questions.